tuned for Occupied Territory America, hosted by Mike Fader. And this is Mike Fader, host of Occupied Territory America, with two reminders. If you're new to this show, uh, we have an ongoing um, political dialogue, which I host also on Facebook. And you can go there anytime. It's called Occupied, just Google Occupied Territory and Facebook, and it'll take you right there. And I post things usually every day, sometimes twice a day, and we have an ongoing um, conversation. Sometimes it gets out of hand, and that's the best part. Uh, so you can go there. Also, if you want to find out what other shows I do on the radio and um, to find out about books I've written and other things and to join my mailing list, go to my website, Fader Files, F-E-D-E-R-F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S, FaderFiles.com. So, in the last uh, couple of weeks on this show, after all, it is called Occupied Territory, and it's about the Occupy. It started out at the same time, roughly, as the Occupy movement did. And we've been talking about, uh, it's around a two-year anniversary of the uh, first occupations of the Occupy movement, the actual encampments. And we've been going over what the last two years have shown us and where the Occupy movement is right now, where it's going. And we have a guest on today to help us talk about that. We have Michael Perlman with us. Hi. Hi, good morning. How are you? Okay. Uh, let me introduce you, all right, and then we'll, uh, we'll go on from there. Uh, Mr. Perlman is a um, filmmaker and a performing artist, an attorney and founder of two not-for-profit organizations. He has been selected by Amnesty International as an official artist for Amnesty. He, found, he helped found and served on the board of Cross-Cultural Solutions, one of the largest volunteer organizations in the United States. And he's also the founder and director of Rock to Save Darfur. <clears throat> he also produced, wrote, and directed the award-winning film, uh, films Eyes of the World and the PBS International documentary Tibet Beyond Fear. And the most recent film is uh, The 99% Occupy Everywhere, right? That's correct. Okay. And um, also, you're a uh, founder and lead vocalist in the band Rejectionist Front. Interesting name. So what is, tell me about the band. Well, the, the name is about rejecting the status quo and seeking positive change. And um, so we do that through music as well as film. So on the music side, um, it's socially conscious lyrics that raises... Uh, important points about the issues of the day, looking internally into ourselves to see uh, how we can evolve to a better place both within ourselves and then extend that out uh, to the world. So, you know, we've been very uh, fortunate to have uh, recently had something on MTV that was uh, tied in with Occupy mm -hmm. uh, because it was about the economic crisis and the bank's culpability in that crisis and how that's hurt so many um, people around the country and around the world and how we really have to hold the banks accountable. 
Oh, so let me ask you a couple of questions. So it's been around, uh, it's like the second anniversary, roughly, you know, of the um, the beginnings of the Occupy movement. I suppose people could say they were theoretical or abstract beginnings, let's say, months before that. But the first, I'm, I'm dating it from Zuccotti Park, the first people who actually just stayed there um, and what spread across the country. So what would you, some people would say, now sometimes maybe what I'll do uh, just to, for the sake of uh, discussion here is be a little cynical or a devil's advocate so we can get into it. Um, some people would say, if I say, if we take the pulse of the Occupy movement right now, what would we be seeing? Or some people would say, and a lot of people who wish it was dead, would say, if we did an autopsy of it. So where is Occupy now? You know, uh, everyone has a different opinion, I guess, about many things, including Occupy. But, uh, you know, my opinion, based on experiences of having been there, really from just about the beginning, I guess from the beginning of October, and helping to organize different actions along the way, including um, the most recent one, the two-year anniversary. Mm-hmm. Um, now my take on it is, is that the people who um, were down in the Zuccotti Park who were protesting, um, many of them continued to work on the critical issues that Occupy brought to the forefront. And they're doing that in partnership with different organizations that have been working on those issues long before Occupy began. So it it continues to galvanize, it continues to resonate. I think many people would agree that it certainly has changed the conversation in America to the vast and growing income inequality, and that many people believe that that helped shape the 2012 elections. And most recently in the mayoral candidacy in New York, Bill de Blasio has actively come out in support of Occupy numerous times, including on the second anniversary, mm-hmm. and literally took a page right out of Occupy um, with his proposal, which has a lot of support, uh, for a very small tax on the very wealthy in New York and to use that money for free preschool for all New Yorkers. Mm-hmm. Hey, I, well, you know, the uh, it's interesting. Uh, there was an article just the other day in the Times, and uh, here's the headline, um, Data Back Bloomberg on Disparity with Income. As millionaires arrive in city, a gap widens. In fact, the income gap in New York City is growing possibly more rapidly than any other place in the country. This is not just a New York City radio show, but I mean, just as an example, I mean, you've got a billionaire mayor who really has favored uh, rich people in this city. If you if you drive around the city or you walk around the city or whatever, you, I, and I'm basically saying Manhattan, the center of the business and residence for rich people, you see tremendous amount of construction, and 90% of it are hotels that are like $1,000 or $2,000 a room, or um, condos that are $2 million, you know, a shot. So it's a city for the rich, and Bloomberg went so far as to say that as far as he's concerned, that's his philosophy, that the, that this, the people, the mass of people in New York City benefit from having all the rich people here because they pay so many taxes. This is the whole mindset of this guy. So when you bring up de Blasio, it's fascinating because the major newspapers and all the, all the, uh, the, the smart money bet on the, uh, the hack, you know, the regular Democratic candidate in New York, and uh, de Blasio beat out all of them. Yeah, and he beat out all of them by quite a large margin as well. And he, he, he talked about the tale of two cities, which is, you know, the rich and the poor and how the middle class is, is really shrinking. And it's a, a grave concern. And then this is the type of thing that I think mobilized a lot of people to come down to Occupy at the beginning, both in Wall Street and then spreading around the country and then spreading around the world. Because it's really a global phenomenon that uh, – in the last 30 years, there's been this huge transfer of income from the middle class to 
to the wealthiest and particularly to the multinational corporations. And so, you know, a lot of people down um, who continue to work with Occupy um, and people in the general public, they see it and they know it and they feel it and they're living it. And um, so the purpose, you know, of making this film, the 99% Occupy Everywhere, was to really show in very simple terms personal emotional stories of how that's affecting individuals' lives, mm-hmm. literally from a 22-year-old right out of college to a 92-year-old grandmother, and representing why different ethnicities and backgrounds. Captain Ray Lewis, who was a police captain who came down to show his support and actually got himself arrested because he believed that so many people were down there and continued to work for freedom and for justice in this country and in solidarity got himself arrested. So, you know, and there are wealthy people also that also support the movement and the goal of shrinking this um, income inequality because they know that ultimately it's unstable for any society when it grows to such a degree that it currently exists here in the United States. When you when you look at the state of things, though, I mean, you've got the Trans-Pacific um, uh, Partnership, you know, uh, being negotiated now. You've got a European Union and American uh, partnership being negotiated, all of which will destroy even further workers in the middle class in this country and make the world a more dangerous place for most people. You've got... Uh, growing income inequality. Every week it seems to get wider and wider. It's wider now than it's ever been in history. Um, you've got, uh, you've got uh, more billionaires than we've ever had before. New York City is an incredible example. But uh, the, you've got the Congress where over half the people there are multi-millionaires. So basically if you look at all of this, you see it getting worse all the time. Where, give me some details or evidence of how it's getting better in some other way. Yeah. Um Regarding the income inequality, you're right. It's getting worse, and there's no way around it, which makes Occupy and all the people that are working on these issues more relevant than ever. Mm-hmm. That problem is getting worse. Now, yeah, Jeffrey Sachs, a well-known economist who is not really on the left or the right, when you know he, he takes cuts from both parties, uh, both sides. So we actually chose him to be in the film because we thought, okay, he's a middle-of-the-road guy who can just speak very simply in economic terms of what can be done. And it's remarkable because he, he points out that the reason why this income inequality has grown so much is because the profits have gone to the top, top as has the tax breaks. And so when you think about in the last four years, $200 billion of profit being made by 30 major U.S. corporations, and they've paid no taxes on it, we know we have a huge problem here. So we really need a fair taxation where the corporations and the wealthy pay at least the same effective tax rate as the middle class. If that happens, um, uh, we can raise, Jeffrey says, about $500 billion with a B a year, half a trillion dollars a year. And that money can, in simple terms, go for free preschool through college education for all Americans. We can rebuild the green grid with an infrastructure, create millions of good-paying U.S. jobs, save so many people from pollution-related diseases, and have a tremendous amount of money left over to health care and paying down the deficit. So the answers are there. It's just a matter of a political will to get it done. Now, people are listening to this conversation, and they've heard conversations like this before, and so have you and I. And, of course, the next question that would be asked or the next uh, domino that falls down is, how can you possibly change the political um, you know, um, structure, how can you change the people who make these laws who favor the rich when they themselves are being um, bought and sold by the rich as politicians? In other words, that's the next thing, right? 
That's, that's, that's correct. And that's really the umbrella issue that many people in the movement speak about. That was a focus day for the two-year anniversary, and that there's a wide coalition of people across the board, Occupy, Republicans, Democrats, Independents, even Tea Party. They all agree that you got to get the money out of politics because it's corrupting the system. And just like you said, it's, um, it's creating legislation and policy that is for the benefit of the very, very wealthy and the corporations at the expense of all the rest of us. And so, again, in New York, as the Blasio can be a very interesting template to what can be done in a local level if he's elected mayor, um, on, on the state level, there has been uh, a, a vote that came very close, only two votes shy of passing a comprehensive public campaign financing law in New York, mm-hmm. which would take a significant amount of the money out of politics. So there are a lot of organizations that are um, coalescing and partnering with Occupy to make sure we get that legislation passed when the New York State Legislature reconvenes. And that well, could really be a template for the nation. What about, what about anything on a federal level? Do you see any hopeful signs on a federal level at all? Or do we have to work locally? You know, I I oftentimes think that, you know, bottom-up is the way things ultimately get, get done that have lasting effects. So mm-hmm. I think local and state is very important. You know, on the federal level, you know, at the end of the day, these people who are presently, you know, in Congress, they want to stay in power. And if they get enough people, emails and telephone calls, look, we're not going to vote for you if you don't support, for instance, public campaign financing, mm-hmm. and you make it a... Uh, you know, an issue that really uh, galvanizes people, I think it could sway people's opinions because I think that there's a significant amount of, of legislators now that actually would support it, but they can't do it because of the present system, the way it's set up, that they know they just have to get as much money as they can because the next guy's doing it too in order for them to be reelected. So, so are, I, are you, because you, 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 there's a lot of discussion on this show, and certainly I'm one of the people, I would never vote for a Democrat or a Republican on the national level. I mean, it's, to me, it's the same exact thing. So I vote, you know, for a Green Party or Justice Party candidate, and even on a local level. I mean, there are people, there are mayors of small cities in the country now who are actually been elected on the Green Party ticket. So I would never vote for a Democrat on a national level. They would have to be quite extraordinary, you know. But... Uh, do you, as far as as far as the protests and the encampments, the the encampments were that you couldn't beat that visual. You know what I'm saying? You couldn't beat the the visual of people actually camped out in the smack in the middle sometimes, or right near the center of a major city, and you know holding up signs and holding up traffic and whatever else they were doing. Uh, once they were evicted from there. It takes away. I mean, this is a this is a visual society, for better or for worse. It's a television society or an internet society. Everybody looks at things all the time. What you don't see sometimes doesn't exist. You see what I'm saying? So, uh, you know, how does Occupy like uh, <laughs> we're not? You know, Occupy is not going to hire a publicity uh, firm, right? So, how does it make itself more present just by action, just by being that way? Well, you know. I think it's a combination of things. One, uh, you definitely have the nail on the head that uh, physical encampment, encampment and people being able to see that visually was very powerful. It was powerful for two reasons. One, because everyone who walked by and then media that began covering it realized, wow, there's something happening here right now. We can see these people demonstrating and demanding a positive change in society and speaking to the issues that many people agree with but hadn't had a voice before. Right. And number two, the people who came to the encampments or supported the people that came there and marched with them also were galvanized because they realized, wow, there's so much of us, so many of us that believe the same thing. We thought we were screaming in the dark before. 
So, you know, after a concerted movement by the mayors of throughout the United States to squash the physical encampments, you know, at that point, that was a big challenge for Occupy. What happens after that point? But, you know, in, in significant ways, the movement has met the challenge. And, that, and, it, and it's, not, it's less visible to the public and to the media, but many people in the movement and the movement as a whole continues to partner up with organizations that are still continuing to work on these critical issues. Well, like, and, like, like for instance, what organizations? Yeah, so for instance, um, on this past uh, September 17th, there was a uh, the Robin Hood tax got a lot of traction. Mm -hmm. And that basically is a tiny financial transaction tax, 0.5%, that basically the banks would have to pay. And as a result of that, um, there's a huge coalition, literally of more than 200 organizations, more than 200 million people around the world, Nobel Prize winners, straight on through to even Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and the Vatican. I mean, a, co a, a massive coalition. And they did a second anniversary celebration for Occupy and did the largest action of the day, which was a big protest and then demonstration, uh, and then march that went from the United Nations to Midtown Manhattan. And there actually was a lot of positive press from a host of different media sources on that action. And it really speaks to what Occupy you know, can do and can mobilize and also can inspire um, amongst others. I mean, it, it's really important. Is there, is there a, a website or a particular website where people can go to uh, that you would just plug people into? Because I'm, I'm, I'm sort of hooked into a kind of a low-level but ever-widening group of uh, small radio shows and radio stations across the country. So the media is sort of building itself up like mushrooms overnight everywhere. That's a, that's a helpful sign. But where can people go to uh, think, give me a couple of websites where people can go to uh, join up or to get involved. Because, uh, you know, right now a lot of people just feel like it's just something that turned into an idea but doesn't exist physically. Sure. Um, one thing I would say was is that uh, we have accumulated a list of different websites where people can plug in on uh, worldtobe.com. That's world number two. B E B as in boy, E as in um, ecstasy.com. Mm -hmm. And there we have a list of different ones that are related to Occupy and that are working with Occupy to help on these issues. So that's really important. Um, InterOccupy is another good one as well. That's a hub of different Occupy uh, sites as well. So I would say those two are, um, are, would, this, would be quite helpful for the listeners. This, uh, this Robin Hood tax, which I'm sure most of my listeners know about because we, we've talked about this plenty of times before, would, which would hurt no one except it would cause exquisite pain to a bunch of uh, millionaires and billionaires, which is not so bad in itself, and it would raise tens of billions, maybe hundreds of billions of dollars a year. And it's a tiny little tax. It wouldn't affect anybody. In fact, it wouldn't even affect pension plans or anybody else who invests as a small investor if you've got your money in a pension plan. Sometimes you can't help but have it in one. You know, like New York State has a pension plan. New York City has a pension plan. Sure. It's not going to hurt anybody except it's going to, uh, you know, chew up the bank's profits a little bit, which is not going to make any difference to most people. Um, this is actually um, uh, um, a bill now that's introduced in the House, correct? Yeah, it is, and so that's exciting. So it's there, and it's galvanizing support, you know, across you know across party lines, across ideological lines, et cetera. And it, it already has been implemented, or will be implemented by January first, in most of the major Western democracies, the biggest economies of the world, um, as well as uh, Japan and others. So it's already being implemented hmm. in many, many countries. So there's a lot of wind at our back on this one, and the, and. It's even remarkable, like even people who have hedge funds, even people that are, you know, the 
Mm -hmm. The very wealthy, even they um, oftentimes support this tax as well because it will actually stabilize the markets. Because what it will do is it will cut down on a lot of those microsecond computerized tradings, which is, which which causes more problems in the market in terms of stability. Mm -hmm. So there is a wide range of support for that tax. And what is, what is the what what is the bill actually? I mean, what is it called? Does it have a number? With the Robin Hood tax bill? Yeah, um, there is. Uh, I'd have to really look it up for you, but I don't have it. Well, let me see if I have it in the, because I had a couple of press releases I printed out. Uh, oh, wait a minute. Here, um, Inclusive Prosperity Act. Does that sound right? There you go. Inclusive you go. Prosperity Act. Yeah. Um, so it's actually, do you know who introduced it in the House? Any ideas? I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure. Well, I'm sure it wasn't. Uh, so here's another question, though, about the Occupy movement. You see what's happening a lot in the country right now. One of the, one of the things which, to me, was inevitable. Um, you've got the, the worst case of strange bedfellows that I've ever seen existed. And I read a lot of history, and I've been alive a long time. I have never seen a crazier case of strange bedfellows getting together, like with the NSA and with this bombing Syria and all this other stuff, right? That uh, you've got the Tea Party, the right wing nuts, the ones who are actually sort of blackmailing the United States and holding and you know yeah. shutting everything down. So you got those those loonies on one side, and then you've got the uh, the left, um, and I, I won't even say liberals, but you've got the left on the other side, partnering up. And even you see sometimes there are votes. There was a vote in the House about three weeks ago, introduced by a Republican, about curtailing the NSA that was just narrowly defeated. So uh, the new phenomenon now is. And I, and I want you to tell me how you think that uh, relates to Occupy or affects it, is you've got the, the real right wing and the real left wing getting together on similar issues that have to do with uh, government abuse of the public. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think that that, uh, that also dovetails also into the money out of politics because there is this general con, uh, consensus amongst people that are more to the left and more to the right that the government you know, has too much power um, and is not utilizing that the power that they have effectively and that the system is very corrupt. And so as a result of that, you actually see, for instance, money out of politics, you'll see Occupy and Tea Party actually agree on something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and, you, and you would see them also agree on something like, um, you know, all of the expanded powers that the executive uh, branch has just taken and is usurping our, you know, civil rights and the massive surveillance that goes on, amongst other things. So, um, so that is interesting. But the big distinction between the two is that, you know, Occupy sees that, you know, in my opinion, that it can, the government, when governed well, can be a force for good. And as opposed to the Tea Party, just wants to shrink everything down right. and just cut all of, or many of the programs that are vital programs that are helping people um, live day to day. Um, and they're not also, and you know, so that's a, those are one of the many, many critical distinctions. Like, 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 for instance, a lot of the programs that have been um, furloughed, furloughed or, or shut down temporarily are, are you know, inevitably, right? Like uh, the Center for Disease Control, uh, FDA inspectors, you know, anything that affects the mass exactly. of people's welfare. And, and WIC, and WIC, just like getting food to hungry right. people. Right. You know, it's just remarkable. And, the, you know, even the Republican – and I make a point of not speaking about, you know, one party better than the other party or anything like that. And you made a good point before about, you know, parties that are not the Democrats and Republicans that more people are moving towards, mm -hmm. um, you know, as alternative practical solutions. So I, I make a point of not – I'm really trying to look at it as a postpartisan issue. It's like if people are hungry in America, 
they should have food. And so if, if there's a Republican Congress that's cutting food stamps, it's just outrageous, you know. And it's like these are critical things that we just need as a society. We need food. We need help. We need shelter, uh, you know, and we need education. And we need it not just because it's the right thing to do, but because it actually creates a stronger and more prosperous society. We cannot continue along this way because it just creates more instability that ultimately will undermine everyone's interest in this country, mm-hmm. even people that do not rely um, on those things. And when you think about it, uh, more than half of the Americans live at only double the poverty line, which is means they're really struggling to make ends meet. And that's why it's so essential to have this fair taxation, amongst other things. And I'm really happy you spoke about uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership um, proposal, mm-hmm. because um, this is something that will undermine and make very, very difficult a host of things that are already in place that are giving some protection, at least, for the environment and workers' rights um, and financial regulations. All of those things we don't have at an adequate level yet, but this will undermine all of that, and it's literally just a race to the bottom. And they're trying to get a fast track, and people have to do everything we can to try to stop that fast track, because if we get it, every bill that's ever fast-tracked has wound up becoming law. Let let me ask you this question, and uh, by the way, you're listening to Michael Perlman, and uh, um, he's a filmmaker and a performing artist, attorney, and uh, founder of two not-for-profit organizations. Um, is there a place where you do a blog, or do you have a website where people can check out what you're doing, or, do, or would you direct them somewhere else? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, at uh, at worldtv.com. We, we created this um, this uh, this entity because we all believe that individually and collectively we have a responsibility to create the world to be, and we want to make it the best possible world that we can. So it's just world, the number two, the letter B, the letter E, worldtobe.com. Here's here's maybe the last question I wanted to ask you. Um, During the time when Occupy was, uh, you know, doing a lot of demonstrations, for instance, out in Oakland, where they were joining with unions down on the docks, uh, where there there were some demonstrations and some marches that had no permits, of course, and then there was this sort of injection of of anarchism, uh, which is a kind of a funny word. It could mean lots of things to different people. But uh, there was some violence here and there. But, you know, 99%, to use a certain phrase, uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, were not violent. And I'm reading a book now, a really fascinating book, on the history of civil disobedience in the United States. Mm. Um, we, a lot of people are very frustrated. What they see is their income, which is the same as it used to be, or shrinking, buys far less than it used to. And I'm one of them. You know, I'm in smack in the middle class and not on the higher end of it either. And what I make, what my wife and I make... Uh, you know, we go out, we'll spend $300 on groceries when it used to be 155 years ago, right? It's nuts. Every, everything costs more. Richer people are getting richer all the time, taking over everything, neighborhoods, cities, the whole country. Um, Trans-Pacific Partnership is going on. Even your, Congre- even your representative in Congress is not allowed to know what's going on, right? So the government is completely out of control. It has nothing to do with the mass of American citizens anymore. A long way of saying is that people are frustrated to the point where they may not want to observe um, civil or passive disobedience anymore. Then I almost feel like I'm not going to encourage people to have a violent revolution. But, you know, you get so frustrated after a while when you see things not changing and you see the same suspects. You know, you got Diane Feinstein and Harry Reid and John Boner, excuse me, I like to say his name that way. And, <laughs> and, and you got all these people in Cantor and all these people. Basically, they're the same people. It's like looking at some kind of strange um, turning holograph where it's always the same people, right? And people said, the hell with it. 
let's just go and do something about it. So it's hard to stay civil or pacifist, right, in the midst of all this? Absolutely. You know, the... Um I think that it's really important for a person to have a multi-party system here. And the way we can get these different parties on the ballot is um, by by getting the money out of politics, because if we can do that, then there won't be these, these very large thresholds that are very difficult for the smaller parties to accomplish. I mean, simply stated, if you're able to get whatever the threshold is, 1%, 3%, 5% of signatures in your district or on the national level or mm-hmm. state level, whatever, I think you should be able to run. And, and then I think that if there's an equal amount of money that actually can be spent by the different parties and equal access to the public airwaves, which are public, so we should have equal access to them. Um, we could go a long way towards getting, you know, different voices heard and different um, different opinions actually out there and being able to be voted upon and then effectuate some real change in this country. Well, see, but, this, um, but that's something I actually have speaking about that too. That's something that everybody I think knows at that point, and everybody understands that. And yet, when you look at Really, who's in charge of all the agencies? Who's running the two political parties? What debates take place on any? And I'm talking usually on the national level. You're never going to see anything but a Democrat and a Republican. Um, when you look at all that and you see uh, the control exerted by rich people and by uh, the people in Congress and the same old characters, you say to yourself, you know, you just want to turn back on. Them. I mean, do you, are you encouraging any kind of involvement in any of the two major political parties at all? It's not for me to say that, there's, that, that anyone should be involved in any particular parties. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, people can make their own assessments as to, you know, if it, you know, historically people always say, well, it's less of two evils and whatnot, you know. And some people, issues people are sick of it. And some issues, it might be the same, it might, might, might be the same, it might not be a difference. Um, but at some issues, I think there still is some difference between the two parties mm-hmm. um you know certainly uh with environmental policy um even even with taxation um amongst other things even trying to get more, more money for uh for education and even protecting some existing programs there is still a difference between the two parties but to your bigger point of that yeah. you know that, that there's so many unfortunate similarities between the two of them that are hurting the average person in this country and there is this continuing um, uh, swell from the bottom and from the middle that this has to change. And I think people are going to continue to, to work on these things. And I think people will get out in the streets uh, again when things reach a, a level that is just uh, completely intolerable. Do you and see I that happening? For it to come to that way, but you know, it's it's. Well, well, you know, I, I, the way I, the way I the way I see it is um, that it has to come to that. I just don't see it. I mean, I, there's two major ways that people influence politics. Well, call it three ways. There's the the old voting, right, which doesn't seem to have made much of a difference on any kind of national level, but sometimes it does on a local and state level, which is encouraging. So there's voting. Uh, then there's um, then there's the internet now so people social networking clicking here clicking there the tweets you know people getting uh, you know signing petitions like move on and all these other places uh, with petitions yeah. that, okay so millions of signatures are gathered and that affects things but the third alternative which has always been around forever in all politics in a democratic society including from the beginning of ours is people massing out in the streets, actual human beings uh, violating about 52 ordinances in every major city to make sure that people see them and hear them and know what's going on. Like, I'd like to see a million people in Washington, you know, I mean, but I think people are, for various reasons, 
I don't know. They feel like they've been beaten down so many times that getting out on the street doesn't seem to make any difference anymore. Do you think it is, it's a valid thing to still get out on the street, or is that, is, it, is, that, is that history now? Is that an old thing? I think it's absolutely valid to still get out into the street. I mean, Thomas Jefferson talked about the necessity of having a revolution every uh, every generation, every 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, that's Thomas Jefferson. That's our founding fathers. So, you know, it is very important to get out there um, and to have to have physical presence because that does help to amplify the voice. I think with social media and the Internet now, that is a remarkable way to really amplify these voices as well for the changes that we're speaking about. And um, I, I think it's really a concerted combination of those things. And unfortunately, you do see um, that when a lot of people come out to the streets, police take actions and the mayors, you know, organize themselves to try to squash, you know, the, uh, the civil liberties. And when you contrast that between, you know, all these peaceful protesters being arrested and not one banker who's culpable in the financial crisis being arrested, it's it's truly remarkable and disgusting. And um, But I do believe that it is important and still necessary for people to actually demonstrate, get out in the streets as one of the critical ways of having people's voices heard and ultimately, you know, have a better society. Do, do you see that happening at all? I mean, do you see, like, for instance, in this world to be, I mean, you don't have anything, uh, do, do you see anything brewing or any, any places that people are getting together to plan to do this? I mean, after all, winter is coming. It's not going to happen in the winter. But maybe this coming spring, you know, some coalition of people can actually, because, you know, here's the, here's the bottom line. You don't get anything unless you pay for it, right? And, you know, if you look at Gandhi, you look at Martin Luther King, you look at the anti-war demonstrations, you look at the uh, WTO demonstrations, you look at uh, stuff that happened in Occupy, people got hit, they got hurt, they got arrested. And, you know, it's always been that way. Nothing has ever been achieved in this country. I mean, it's a a violent country. It was born in violence. It's a violent country. But in a lot of places, nothing has ever been achieved. In India, you know, there were thousands of people who were killed and severely disabled during those protests. So what I'm saying is, I think, you know, you can go just so far with clicking and tweeting. That's all. It's I'm sorry. It's a rhetorical question. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, but I agree. I think that's a very important component of any, you know, a systematic change is for people to get on the streets. And you're right, an unfortunate consequence of that is that, you know, police uh, will act excessively and people, you know... They always have. Yeah. Yeah, they always have. And, and, and which is so ironic because, you know, ultimately, particularly with Occupy, I mean, the, the, the movement spoke to issues that were actually would help the police. You know, they, they want to protect the police pensions. And they want to have a fair, you know, living right. wage for, right. for police and other things. So it, it was, I think it was more the people that were above the police that were really uh, putting the word out that, you know, you, you can't allow this to continue. Um, well, we saw this, you so, saw it in Madison, you know, Madison, Wisconsin. The cops were out there all supporting it. They were demonstrating. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, 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 so the, know, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, I mean, you know, it's a a difficult road, but it's an essential road because I'll tell you when, um, you know, I've been fortunate to do a lot of traveling and and, uh, I was in China. Um, We had a film just came out earlier this year called Free China, The Courage to Believe, which actually showed systematic human rights violations inside China as a result of corporate money, uh, prison slave labor going on inside China and other ways that corporations are benefiting Mm -hmm. from systematic human rights inside China. And when I was in China, um, and people obviously are not allowed to protest in China, and then when I come back to the United States, 
and um, and there was an action going on, and I was asking people, hey, come on down and let's protest. And some people were saying to me, no, I, I believe in the cause, but I'm not going to go and protest because I'm afraid that I'll be arrested mm-hmm. um, or, you know, I'll have a police record. And so, you know, even though the countries are obviously fundamentally quite different, in that example of that moment, here were people in both societies afraid to go out and exercise their 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 human rights mm-hmm. to be able to speak and assemble freely and that's really scary and i urge anyone listening here today and thinking about these issues that when you hear about a protest or a demonstration and it's something that speaks to you go out there and you know boots on the ground are very important and do not allow yourself to be intimidated um because this is our fundamental uh, freedom our fundamental first amendment rights that, that must be exercised in order to be maintained I think I think that's putting it very well, and I and I hope I see some of that in the spring because it would energize a lot of people, and it would be something that inevitably would have to show up, you know, on the news and on the visuals and on YouTube and everything else. It would have to show up. They couldn't avoid it forever, although they try. All right, Michael Perlman. It's world to be. It's uh, the the number two world to be as a dot org. Yeah, world to be with a B E dot com. Dot com. Okay, world to be dot com, and um, from there you can probably uh, you know check into some other places too. Thanks for coming on. For I sure. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank thank you for for a wonderful talk and for all the good work you're doing and uh, for all the people listening out there who uh, really care and want to have a better society because yeah we are the large majority we can make things happen. Okay, thanks for coming on. Uh, Thank you so much, Mike. Okay. Uh, this is Mike Fader, and this is I'm the host of Occupied Territory America. We're here every Thursday on PRN, the most listened-to voice in the universe. That's PRN.FM. There's no radio station in the whole galaxy or the whole universe, the known universe, that has more listeners than this radio station. It's true. I'll show you the numbers if you want to ask me. Um, the... Um, Show has about, what do we have now, Mr. Engineer? 15, 20 minutes? What do we have left? 20. Okay, let's take a little break, and we'll come back, and um, I will carry on.
All right, this is Mike Fader, and uh, as I mentioned, we're here every Tuesday on PR, not Tuesday, every Thursday afternoon at 2 p.m. on PRN.FM. Uh, there are archives of this show, and the show is rebroadcast on other radio stations. And this, there's, a, there's a multiplying layer, a kind of an interbreeding going on <laughs> between uh, all sorts of uh, Occupy stations, um, political activist radio stations. There are more and more and more low-power stations and podcasts going on by the week in this country. It's one of the most encouraging things I've seen in a long, long time. It's a kind of, talk about grassroots, it's literally growing under the ground. You know, the roots are the underground, right? It's these radio stations. Sometimes they're from people's basements or attics or their own bedrooms or their living rooms. Sometimes they are actually in real radio studios. There's more and more radio studios and radio shows uh, being broadcast about these issues all the time, which means more people will hear about it and more people will be hooked into it. Uh, a lot of this is a generational thing. You know, when people make these comments, and even when I've made these comments, after all, I'm an old dude, right, come from the other generation, uh, you talk about the media. When we talk about the media all the time, I think a lot of people over the age of, I don't know what, pick 40, 50, when they say the media, they mean, uh, you know, the major networks, they mean places like the cable stations like MSNBC or Fox and all these other places, they mean major newspapers, and or major radio stations, you know, like Premier Broadcasting and all these places, people that have Rush Limbaugh on and all these other, uh, you know, disturbed, sexually stunted nitwits that go on and scream and yell. And I'm including, by the way, some of the screamers and yellers on the left, right, who are basically not really on the left. They're just, you know, Democratic Party hacks like Ed Schultz. You know, all of this stuff, and when people say the media, yeah, the, the, the latest statistics show that most people in this country, and again, they'll think of it as a, as a generational thing. You've got a huge number of people who are, um, who are over 65. Um, you know, the population is, is aging all the time. So the media really generally is assumed to be, by people who have uh, used major media before, to be those things, right? But in fact, the media is more and more individual small uh, podcasts, radio stations, blogs, and uh, various uh, websites, alternative websites on the Internet. I mean, there are places like Alternet and, uh, you know, uh, Common Dreams and, uh, and dozens of other places. Uh, Truth Dig, Truth Out. I mean, I get them all. I get announcements from all of them every day. These places have tens of thousands of hits every day. More and more and more people are seeing this stuff. So there is a media out there, but it's... it's and it's, you can't say it's invisible, but it hasn't added up to some giant corporation or some huge syndicate. And one of the, one of the hits on Occupy, which I, which I have uh, ventured forth myself many times, is that it had absolutely no hierarchical structure. I really don't believe, maybe this is also a generational thing, I do not believe that anything that's uh, intended to be um, a specific spearhead movement that's visible by the public that wants to achieve anything could possibly get anywhere without some sort of hierarchical structure or direction uh, from above. Or, you know, some, uh, unfortunately, you would have to have some kind of inner circle of people who are planning these things. You'd have to keep turning them over all the time, that there wasn't one person in power all the time, because then you would wind up with some sort of dictatorship or business as usual. But still, um, but what's happening with this media stuff, it's free form 
grassroots, growing overnight like weeds media, which is an extremely exhilarating thing. This is the way most people under the age of 40 uh, are starting to get their news or getting almost all their news now. People do not, obviously, don't pick up the newspapers anymore. They're all going out of business because it's an older generational thing. And even people in an older generation uh, like the fact that they're getting instant updates or they can get the latest news just by clicking on a, some device in their hand, whether on the bus or walking on the street, rather than waiting for the next day's newspaper. I will always stick <laughs> with, with, with the newspaper, but I do the other two. So I, I, love, I love picking up the newspaper in the morning and reading in-depth stories by sometimes extremely good reporters who have done long-term investigations. But this happens on the Internet. There's one fantastic site on the Internet called ProPublica, ProPublica, P-R-O-P-U-B-L-I-C-A, ProPublica. Sometimes they partner up with places like the New York Times, but only on the left wing of the New York Times. And this is a wonderful organization, ProPublica. If you haven't checked that out, check it out. They do in-depth investigative stuff, and it's really good. Uh, there is always plenty of opinion sites. There is as many blogs in this country as there are human beings. I think there may be 320 million blogs. Babies have blogs. Chimps have blogs. <laughs> so like anything else in life, you have to pick the ones that seem the most, what can I say, the most uh, honest, the most sincere, uh, the most reasonable, and also seem to have... Uh, looked into the facts of things, you know, like, and I, I will often uh, write a, p a political opinion stuff on my uh, blog on Facebook, the Occupied Territory blog on Facebook, and it's very clear that it's just opinion. If I want to put in some facts, I will quote someplace, which I find, you know, which has real investigative reporters. Um, or I will, uh, you know, stick in a link to a video of, uh, of something that actually is uh, a more, um, you know, investigative kind of place that does in-depth investigations. But here again, and uh, I'm contradicting what I'm saying, but it's necessary to do that to widen the scope of what, of what we apprehend in the world. You've got something going on right now that Senator Dianne Feinstein and uh, one or two other senators, uh, and I forget what committee is. You know, it's always some committee, you know, the House Armed Services, the House Intelligence, the House, I don't know what it is. This time, uh, they're coming up with something called the Media Shield Bill, which we're going to talk about much more on this show. We're going to talk to people who are lawyers who know more about this. There's something very dangerous going on now in, in Congress, what's new, right? Uh, and I, when I say dangerous, I mean for our civil, political, and, uh, you know, um, you know uh, free speech rights. They're coming up with something, uh, and you can always tell uh, that it's bad. If Charles Schumer and Dianne Feinstein, the two most um, arrogant, corrupt, uh, in the pockets of the rich, uh, right-wing Democrats in the entire country, Dianne Feinstein and Charles Schumer, if they're pushing a bill, watch out, right? <laughs> so they're pushing this bill right now, and it's called the Media Shield Bill. And it's the same thing you get from lots of people all the time. It appears as if they're trying to defend somebody's rights, but what they're really trying to do is squash people's rights. Uh, the Media Shield Bill has been proposed in the Senate um, what it is is that because uh, of uh, Edward Snowden and other people and all these whistleblowers and all the um, incredible persecutions and prosecutions of the media, and now we're talking about the quote-unquote legitimate media like New York Times reporters, reporters even for Fox News, which is not so legitimate, but uh, you know when they actually do actual news stories, 
people like this are being um, prosecuted by the government for uh, getting involved with people who are leaking information to them. So they're going after news journalists, after real journalists, and after reporters. They're going after places like the New York Times. They're going after places like uh, even Fox News when they attempted to do a real news story. They're going after a place called the McClatchy Newspapers, which is a very sort of liberal-leaning uh, newspaper chain, McClatchy Newspapers. Anybody who's investigating the NSA, drone killings, uh, you know, uh, CIA torture, black torture, uh, prisons, any journalist that investigates this kind of stuff is being scared off by the government, threatened with being locked up, their sources being locked up and prosecuted, put in jail for 10 years, 20 years. See what happened to... Uh, to, uh, to, to Manning. You see what happened uh, with Snowden. If he sets foot here, he'll be in jail the rest of his life if they don't send him to Guantanamo. So to defend, to defend, because they've taken so much heat from the rest of the country and even some of these slumbering corporate stooge media organizations have awakened and said, wait a minute, you can't keep beating up our reporters or, or threatening them or trying to censor us or prosecuting them on a federal level and locking them up. You can't do that. We can't have a democracy without free speech. Even they understand that at this high level, right, this corporate level. So in response to this, um, people like Schumer and Dianne Feinstein and several other senators, and I forget which committee it's on, have come up with something. They're championing the rights of the media. It's such bullshit, believe me. <laughs> it's such utter bullshit. They, they've come up with something called the Media Shield Bill. They're going to protect the media. They're, they're standing up for our rights. Not really. What the Media Shield Bill is, and you'll hear much more about this in the coming weeks and months as it uh, either makes its way through Congress or uh, the president actually receives it on his desk, if it does get that far, and I hope it doesn't, it should be defeated even in subcommittee before it even gets to the, to the floor of the Senate. This is what it is. Uh, Dianne Feinstein and Charles Schumer, they have taken it upon themselves in this bill to amend the bill to define just exactly who a journalist is or what journalism is. Even worse, what journalism is and who's a journalist. And they have this long definition, which I don't have in front of me right now, which would amuse you and shock you. This is true big brotherness. This is real censorship. This bill, if it was passed and it was signed, would, would say exactly who gets to write what. Who is actually a journalist and who's not? In other words, it would define the small circumscribed group of people who are legitimate corporate um, journalists and who are recognized journalists. Um, and it would uh, draw a little circle around them. And outside that circle, who would that be? Me. It would be you and your podcast. It would be anybody who does investigations on their own. Any place that isn't a large, well-funded, well-connected media organization. Now, to do, you know, to do it justice, to be fair, to be fair and balanced, there are, uh, like, for instance, if you have a newspaper in a very small town and uh, it has, like, 50 readers, but you are incorporated and you have a business and you're trying to make, uh, you're trying to actually build a newspaper base and trying to make money at it and you're online. Or if you have a website or you have an investigative website or you're writing a blog and you try to, uh, to do some journalism, uh, if somebody gives you a story, and especially if that someone is connected to the government, you are not protected. This bill, right now, it's sort of up in the air who's a journalist and who's not and who deserves protection. My opinion, and of course the opinion of most people 
who uh, live in the world I do and people I think who listen to these kinds of radio shows is that we all are journalists. We all are. We all have an opinion. Yes, there has to be. There is a difference between what's true and what's not true, what is a fact and what's not a fact. You can say anything you want. I mean, look at, look at Fox News. You can say anything at all and say that it's true and just lie. You can look right at the camera and smile and lie. That's what those people get paid to do. But so do people like the uh, press secretary of, uh, of any president. Uh, a guy like Robert Gibbs or whoever is the press secretary. I can't even keep track of these people. You know, they, they put in a year or two and then they get a job for, you know, $500,000 a year working for some corporation or a publicity, um, you, know, um, you know, house. But there, this Media Shield bill is going to tell you exactly who a journalist is and what journalism is. This is really something. This is really a tremendous censorship threat to the First Amendment. The government of the United States, the Congress of the United States, has absolutely no right whatsoever, according to the foundations of this country, to be telling anybody who a journalist is and what journalism is. Yes, we all have our very clear opinions about it, but it should not be written down in a law and si written down on a bill and signed into law. That would be totally unconstitutional. You cannot have a law in the United States of America, unless you're just giving up and saying, let's have a dictatorship and I'll sit back and watch football. You cannot have a law that says who a journalist is and who it isn't. You can't have a law saying this is journalism and that's not. And because the point is, once they draw that little circle around who they say a journalist is, Schumer and Feinstein, people who, are, who have tens of millions of dollars or who are completely in the pocket of Wall Street going to tell you who a journalist is, you're right. <laughs> Once that happens, anybody outside the little magic circle that they drew uh, in their little committee, you know, and that was signed by their pet president, whoever it is at the time, anybody out that circle, outside that circle is a criminal. They are making everybody, 90% of the people who write stuff will be outlaws. And this includes a lot of people who have very large websites, uh, large readerships, and large even radio programs and TV shows, if they don't fit into this narrow definition, I should have brought it with me, uh, but just check it out. Google Media Shield Bill definition of journalist or Media Shield Bill, and somewhere in there you will see, and I'll bring it in here more and we'll have guests on, who they say a journalist is and what journalism is, but they have no right to do it. This is what's going on. And I say we need more outlaws all the time. You know, uh, the, one of the downsides of America is that there's all this rugged individualism and, you know, outlaws uh, thrive. They did in the Old West. Uh, they did in the founding of the country. They do now. There's all kinds of outlaws in America. And everybody looks at them as like kind of like uh, heroes, right? You know, with John Wesley Harden, blah, 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 blah. Everybody's, you know, Jesse James. These people represented, the, you know, the, the will of the people. They were really, but they had to live outside the law, you know, outlaws. That's, that's, <laughs> there's a lot of outlaws in this country, just a bunch of thugs and psychopaths, you know, as they are now. Now the outlaws are these people who are billionaires or hedge fund people who keep their uh, taxes offshore. Who are, those are the real outlaws. Those are the real terrorists. But uh, the government has no business. But the, but, the, but the good side of outlaw, if there's a good side to being an outlaw, it's not some, like, you know, armed thug who takes people's money or it's not somebody who... Um, who just plain disobeys rules or doesn't like to have any kind of authority. You know, that, that's just childish, you know, acting out. It's not necessarily anything noble or valuable about it. But 
the good thing about an outlaw, the real outlaws, are all the people who are just setting up their podcast and saying what they need to say all over the place and not walking when it says to walk, walking when they feel like walking, standing in the middle of a square somewhere or marching down a street without a permit. Without that kind of active outlawry, then this place will just, this country will turn into one just gigantic structured dictatorship, which is where it's headed now. We need outlaws, not violent outlaws, but outspoken outlaws. No media shield bills, you know, no badges, no structures, no identities. We just do what we do, and it'll add up to democracy. We have to keep doing it. We need chaos. We don't need violence necessarily, but we need chaos and we need outlaws. So with that, I will see you next week. I went walking, driven in the